our look at First and Second Samuel. I take from my text the 26th verse of the first chapter of Second Samuel that Amber read out a moment before. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Greatly beloved were you to me. Your love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. Let us pray. May your presence be with us this morning, O God. We can have the courage to name our pain and give thanks for your life-giving grace. The story of King David in 1st and 2nd Samuel is one of the most nuanced and complex in the whole Bible. It's also a unicorn among ancient histories, like Germany getting knocked out of the World Cup in the first round, or Houston being in the mid-70s in the middle of summer. What makes it so shocking is that it gives a realistic portrayal of David. You have to understand that ancient histories, ancient histories were not, were not written like the histories are today. Histories in ancient times were court histories, and they, com- they were commissioned by a king or ruler to boast of that king's exploits and victories. It's almost unheard of to have an ancient history where the king is not portrayed as perfect, almost godlike. But not here in First and Second Samuel, and not in our passage for today. Here we get to wrestle with real life. Last Sunday we had the privilege of hearing the story of David and Goliath. It's an iconic story and one that I'm sure you're all familiar with. However, you might not know what happened after that story, which provides the context for today's reading. The Goliath victory catapulted David in the eyes of the Israelites and made him a household name. David married Saul's daughter, Michal, and became best friends and almost certainly lovers with Saul's son, Jonathan. There's a lot more to be said about this David and Jonathan relationship, but that's for another time. As David gained power, Saul saw his power begin to slip away. It seems from the text that Saul might also have suffered from some form of mental illness, which did not help his ruling authority. And he also made a series of missteps which further undermined that same authority. Jealous of David, Saul expelled him from his court and vowed to hunt him down and kill him. Only through the timely help of Jonathan and David's quick reflexes did he get out alive. Cut off from the court, David retreated south and gathered around him his own army of brigands. They seized supplies from those around them, and they even made an alliance with the Philistines. At the end of 1 Samuel, the Philistines yet again attacked Saul and his army. This time, David and his men were being intentionally absent. The Philistines won a smashing victory over Saul. In the midst of the battle, both Saul and Jonathan were killed. This is the background, a very intense an emotionally confusing background for the lament that David intones at the beginning of 2 Samuel. David grieves the loss of Saul and Jonathan. Even though Saul turned on him, David still felt and still acknowledged that emotional connection he had with him. He had been a mentor and a father-in-law. Like so many people at funerals, David had to wrestle with complex emotions. Rarely do family members die without some lingering regrets or anger on behalf of the family. Then there's the death of Jonathan. David openly names his love of Jonathan in this plaintive lament. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Greatly beloved beloved were you to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. 
This is not some private lament that David whispers in a closet. He does it publicly, and it's recorded. He openly names the pain with all of his confused emotions. It's no accident that this is the beginning of 2 Samuel, which is the book that tells of David's rise to the throne. It's as though he can't become king, he can't move on with his life, he can't fulfill what God wants for him without first coming to grips with his pain, openly and publicly. I can't remember the last time that a major public figure grieved so openly. There is one thing that we are taught in society, it's that personal pain should be kept very private. We are not supposed to show pain. We are supposed to put on a good face, have a stiff stiff upper lip. If we're going through a hard time, it should be bottled up inside of us. Naming our pain is an expression of weakness. We're supposed to fake it until we make it. Does that sound familiar? I come from New England, and if there's one thing that's repeated subtly yet forcefully, it's that we are not to display our emotions particularly those emotions that are painful. Part of this stems from not wanting to drag others down with our own pain. We feel that if we name our pain, then others will get depressed. Who wants to be around someone who's in the midst of lament, right? Keep it to yourself. Don't air your dirty laundry for the crowd. But again, this is also cultural. After all, you've all heard the phrase, boys don't cry. There's no place where this is more clearly seen in our society's approach to grief. There was a time when those who were grieving were expected to wear black for a set period of time, whether it be six months or a year. You had a very public expression of grief. Everyone knew you were grieving and respected that. But who does that today? Who wears black after someone dies? How does that affect our reaction towards someone who's grieving? Sure, we express how sad we are that someone died, Other people write kind notes or offer caring words that show condolences, but that's just in the immediate aftermath of a death. Grief lasts far longer than that, not the public expressions of it. For some reason, that's taboo. See this phenomenon also in our approach to funerals. Funerals are intended to be ritual expressions of grief. They are supposed to be sad. They are intended to create a space where we can grieve publicly, where we can cry, where we can name our pain, and have that pain held in the embrace of liturgy, of the liturgy of our faith, of the gathering of family and friends. The the traditional funeral liturgy, with the procession of the coffin in and out of the church, with the prayer of commendation of the dead, with the public gathering by the graveside, with the finality of the lowering the coffin into a concrete vault, are all intended to elicit grief and to mark an end. It is sad, and that's exactly what it's supposed to be. And yet, when someone dies, the most common thing I hear is that the family wants to celebrate life and not dwell on death. We prefer memorial services, far removed from the immediacy of death or a lifeless corpse. I'm told again and again that families want memorial services to be happy occasions. Memorial services where we remember a dead loved one, something that is inherently sad and full of complex emotions, is somehow supposed to be happy we don't want to face death. And more to the point, we don't want to feel that pain. We have to acknowledge it and to come to grips with it. I remember when my father died, my mother never really took the time to properly grieve. She did her best to put on a good face. Everyone knew she was grieving, but she tried to avoid showing her pain whenever she could. I encouraged her to go see a therapist, 
But she dismissed the suggestion out of hand. Why should she go see a therapist when people go through death all the time? As though that was a reason not to take her pain seriously. But our instinct to hide our pain is not limited to death. We discount the effects of traumatic experiences all the time. The trauma of Hurricane Harvey comes to mind. There was, there was something that shook me deeply when watching the footage of flooding and rescues in my own hometown. I remember being at the gym and looking at the TV as Harvey came barreling towards Texas, and it was covered by every 24-hour news station. It seemed somehow surreal, as though it was not happening. My friends and I got together uh, for a game night, the Saturday night of Harvey, and I got soaked to the bone walking those three-quarters of a mile to my friend Chad's place. The rain was intense. I arrived home around midnight, and standing in my living room, I put my hand down and felt the cushion of my dining room chair. It was wet. That's odd, I thought to myself. Why is this wet? I looked up at the air conditioning vent that was immediately above the chair. Was that some issue to do with the AC, I wondered? I pushed the thought out of my head and began to walk toward the stairs. As I walked across the rug, I could feel water under my shoes. I reached down and touched the rug. Oh, no. I quickly went upstairs to my bedroom and looked around. Everything was soaking wet. I could see where the water had poured through the ceiling. Water was coming through a half dozen holes that had appeared. For the next three hours, I frantically did what I could to limit the damage. Afterwards, with buckets strewn everywhere and my bedroom rug, smelling of wet wool, piled in the bathtub, I did the best I could to get some sleep. I failed. I was too concerned that something more would happen, that another leak would spring. In the morning, the cleanup continued, and the next day when I was leaving the house, I noticed water dripping down through the stucco front. Clearly, there were also some major roofs in my leak that were causing water to get behind my walls. Each night during Harvey, I wasn't sure what to, happen, what to expect next. One of the days, I went to the George R. Brown Convention Center to pray with those who were seeking shelter. The scene was hard to describe. I mean, easy to, easy to describe in terms of the facts and what was there, much harder to describe in terms of the emotional impact. That week and the weeks that followed were traumatic. Looking back on it, I'm not sure how well I processed the pain. There were lots of stories of celebration during Harvey, brave rescues and people volunteering, but I spent most of it in shock, which made me feel guilty I wasn't doing more. You were all incredibly generous to those of us who sustained damage in our homes, and I'm so grateful for that. But I haven't really known how to thank you for it, as though thanking you for your help and generosity somehow brought the experience back. It was in my mind constantly this week because I'm finally getting around to repairing and painting the inside of my home. The other day, I found myself wanting the painters to be gone, even though they hadn't finished the job yet. Something in, in me didn't want to deal with the emotions, the pain. Go away, go away. We avoid public lament. We keep it to ourselves. The sad part is that this compartmentalizing of emotions takes a massive toll on our psyches and our souls. Our society today suffers from so many general ills that it can, that can be, at least in part, traced to our reluctance to name our pain. We regularly use substances to try and mask the pain, or we binge-watch TV shows to distract us from what's going on. All too often, we insulate ourselves from others, even those closest to us. That's why it's so important for churches to be places of truth-telling, of naming publicly our pain, of stepping into that difficult space, because when we do... Some remarkable things can happen. Christians should, first and foremost, be realists. Christianity is not about discovering the perfect pain-free life, as though a pain-free life would be perfect. 
in far too many churches, especially in conservative churches, there is this assumption that if you're in pain, you must be a bad Christian. If you only had more faith, God would not put you through this. This pain would not affect you as it does. Oh, your loved one has just died? Don't grieve. He's in heaven with Jesus now. Even though that might be true, or at least an article of our faith, it does not eliminate the reality of pain or, or grief. It can help console us, but, cons- but consolation is not a substitute for naming pain. If we want to be good Christians, that is, realistic Christians, if we want to be healthier people, we have to have the courage to name our pain. Naming our pain, the full extent of it, and its impact on our lives, is the first crucial step to, es- to escaping the power that it has to control us. Maybe the appropriate space is not in public worship, but to name our pain to our friends, our family, our therapist, can make it seem like a great burden is lifted and that we can see a new future. A couple of months ago, our adult education class looked at the work of Brene Brown. Brown, a professor at the University of Houston, has made a career of calling out those things that we are ashamed of. She has demonstrated through her, through her research and the incredible support she has received for her writing and speaking just how important it is to name what is giving us pain, especially when we are ashamed of those things. When we can, when we can honestly acknowledge and address the sources of shame, we can begin to crawl out under, from under the shadows that oppress us. Not all marriages are successful. Nearly every marriage has its struggles. Relationships, in particular long-term intimate relationships, are difficult. The nature of our intimacy changes over time. So often we lose that excitement over intimacy, and sometimes it ceases altogether. Yet in spite of how common this experience is, can we actually name it? Our relationships with our parents and children are almost never void of pain. How can we talk about it? Certain things in our lives give us a huge amount of stress, stress that eats us up from the inside and wreaks havoc on our health. Can we explore that with others? If we do, we often find it can be a relief just to name it. As Christians, there's an even more important reason to name our pain, to engage in lament, as David does. When we are able to confront our pain and wrestle with its implications, we are able to feel more fully the pain of others. Pain is a universal human experience. When we step into that space, as hard as it might be emotionally, it changes how we see what others are going through. We are able to see ourselves and others in the light of the actual lived experience of humans. As much as we might not admit it, pain is a gateway to deeper compassion. If you have been discriminated against, if you know that pain firsthand, you begin to see and share that same pain when someone else faces discrimination. If you felt the, if you felt the pain of losing a job, you can more easily share the pain of someone who is struggling through a similar experience. If you struggle with chronic physical pain or other health issues, you are sensitive to the pain of others. You can pick up the small signs. You know what to say and what not to say. They communicates the simple healing phrase, I know. This naming of pain works both ways. It makes us more aware of other people's pain, but when someone shares their pain, it can also create a connection, a connection board of authenticity. The painter, who is currently painting my house this week, is a deeply conservative Christian. I mean very conservative. He is particularly keen on the second coming in rapture theology, which he has pontificated about at length. Suffice it to say, we've had some interesting discussions. In spite of the many, many areas of theology where we disagree, however, 
we've gotten along quite well. <clears throat> Not only do we have the Bible in common, but the painter has been open in sharing his life story and with it his pain. The painter came to his faith in Jesus through the addiction recovery process. His faith in God, absolutist as it might be, is the one thing that saved him, saved him in this world from his struggle with alcoholism. While I might critique his theology, I am moved by the healing effect that Christianity has had for him. It creates a connection and makes him far more human. This leads me to the final reason why naming pain is so important. First of all, it is cathartic. Naming our pain can remove the shame of it and help us to cope. Second, naming our pain increases our compassion for others through our shared suffering, and when we name our pain, we become more authentically ourselves. But it also does something else, something crucial. When we name our pain, when we sit with it in its full implications, we open up space for redemption to happen. I'm reminded of Robert Browning Hamilton's famous poem, I walked a mile with pleasure, she chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. Pain, sitting with our pain, acknowledging our pain, changes who we are as people. When we go through trying experiences, those experiences shape us, mold us into who we are. No one who has endured deep pain can say that it did not change them. The thing about pain, about naming it and confronting it, and then carrying on in spite of it, is that it creates resilience. In her recent book, Grit, the MacArthur Genius Grant Award winner, Angela Duckworth, argues that grit, resilience, is the most important factor in lifelong success. In 2010, I taught for a year at an Episcopal boarding school, Groton School. I read all about the school and its history when I arrived, and I was intrigued by its origins. Groton was founded to give children born in comfort grit. It was a place that was designed to have its students struggle and fail and process their pain to foster resilience. From its beginning, athletics were required of all students. That wasn't so a student could get into college or be a pro athlete. It was so students had to struggle, fail, pick themselves up again. It was so that they cried at losing and then redoubled their efforts the next time. The school was intentionally uncomfortable in all aspects of life. You can believe this, they intentionally left the windows open in wintertime so that the rooms would be freezing cold and toughen up the students. They didn't even have hot, they didn't have hot water until the 1950s. Something's a little extreme, but anyway. Um, in spite of being so intentionally uncomfortable, uh, the environment itself was incredibly supportive. The Groton School back in its day was very, very small and an intimate place. Each boy knew that he was known and loved, uh, known intimately in that space. But that space also created pain and then helped the students heal through that pain to become more authentically whole people, and people who could deal more effectively with the big pains that life can throw in your way. Pain is not a good thing. Let me be very clear about that. Pain is suffering, and suffering is bad. But the key for us is how we can use our faith to help transform our pain into hope. This is the central message of the New Testament and Jesus. Pain, even the pain of the cross, does not have to be the final word. Pain might crush us. It might break us down. It might make us shameful, anger, depressed, lonely. It might even take away hope, at least for a time. But pain that can find some rooting, some deep foundation with God, can eventually fit into the larger arc of God's providence for our lives. Last night at Sammy Schutte's funeral, I read Paul's famous passage from Romans chapter 8. Paul puts his pain and the pain of life in the larger context of his faith. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. Suffering operates on a human level, 
It is inevitable. But there's another level where God exists. Paul continues, What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul can name our pain, something that comes up again and again in his letters and also in the book of Acts. He can also endure the trials of his life, and he had plenty. But he can see that pain within the larger context of his faith. That transformation of pain does not happen overnight. It can take months or even years. But faith opens up the possibility for it. If we can honestly name the pain before God and others. The psalm we are about to sing, Psalm 130, is the ultimate naming of pain. You can feel the raw struggle of the psalmist. Even in that dark place, he finds a way to name something more, though. His hope. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. More than those who watch for the morning. We're going to try something a little bit different right now. This takes us out of our comfort zone. We're first congregational. Let's be a bit risky, right? So we're going to uh, sing Psalm 130, uh, the instructions for which MJ is about to give us. And then after the conclusion of the psalm, uh, I invite you, uh, if you feel so moved, to come up. I would say light a candle, but I realize that the... Oh, okay. Okay, the candles are about to be lit. Okay, great. Um, To come up, to light a candle, and to place it in the sand, uh, and to name something that is a deep pain for you right now. Now, you can name it out loud, or you can name it quietly to yourself. Uh, but it's an opportunity to actually try and own some of the pain that you might be experiencing right now. So after you do the psalm, there'll be singing that we'll have, and during that time of singing, I invite you to come forward. Uh, Again, it's a chance to begin that process of healing, and here in church, we want it to be a place that welcomes that 